Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. In a generation, Singapore has gone from an underdeveloped nation to a small but important economic power. This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs. I'm talking with one of the youngest women ever to be elected to Singapore's parliament about her country's future. Penny Lowe is currently a World Fellow, part of an intensive program of leadership training at Yale University. Being a woman, being relatively young, were those strikes against you in the minds of some voters? I think Singapore is a patriarchal society, and uh, obviously the role model uh, of a successful uh, parliamentarian uh, is obviously that of a man, married, Mm -hmm. and possibly of an older age group. Mm -hmm. So I've got, uh, so to speak, three strikes against me. (laughs) First, um, I'm a woman, and then I was one of the youngest, and I was also single. And in fact, the single factor itself was uh, something new to the parliament uh, for at least the last 20 years, which has never seen a single uh, in the parliament itself. But really? fortunately, there were three of us. So was that the most difficult of your demographics, the single? Well, um, I think uh, there were um, uh, some voters or some residents who wonder if I understood you know, the importance of um, uh, uh, for example, education for their children and mm-hmm. bringing up children and issues like that. But um, I did not think that there was a lot of doubts in uh, their minds, only because I think the party, the ruling party that I stood on, uh, had a very good reputation and a track record of selecting candidates who can mm-hmm. do the job. Um, and obviously, uh, once we are on the job itself, it is a performance that counts. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't too hard to win people's trust. It took time, mm-hmm. definitely, but um, with some great persistency and being close to the ground all the time, I think that did the trick. You were elected in 2001, which was only a few years after a national financial crisis. Very soon after you got to Parliament, you were dealing with crises like SARS and terrorism. What was it like to join the government in such an unsettled time? Indeed, that's a very good question, Colleen. Um, they say that uh, there are two answers I can give. One, it was really, really tough. <laughs> and the other was, it was the best learning curve that I could ever have. Uh-huh. Because I was uh, relatively new to politics. Um, but um, obviously, I'm not new to Singapore. Mm-hmm. And I knew the um, uh, social psyche, and I knew what was important to the people, uh, which really was jobs, stability, and security. Mm-hmm. Because Singapore has seen a, a period of 40 years of progress before that. And, and then we had the Asian financial crisis. And then, like you said, you know, um, in 2001, when we were elected, that was straight after 911 itself. Right. And then there was an Al-Qaeda cell that was found uh, in Singapore, right. uh, Al-Qaeda-linked cell that was found in Singapore. So what we had to do really was to make very quick decisions on how much information to give to the public so that there's a certain level of transparency without causing unnecessarily alarms. Um, how do we then connect to the people um, in times of SARS so that mm-hmm. we could also persuade them to take the necessary health measures like measuring their temperature twice a day. And what? And then, of course, you know, we had economic restructuring to ensure the uh, continued economic growth of Singapore. And the restructuring itself means some necessary pain for some segments of the population. And so there was retraining and persuading them to uh, retrain even when they're 40, 50, 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think these were excellent opportunities, uh, and I would argue also that some which were not even uh, seen in the last uh, 40 years of prosperity, uh, to train a new parliamentarian. 
um, they were obviously not designed by <laughs> <Right>. us, <laughs> uh, but uh, they were probably the best training ground. And I think uh, the key to that is, as I've said earlier, to keep very close to the ground, um, understanding that in many instances, we would have to lead by example. For example, in the case of SARS, we had to go down to the streets and take a thermometer and do the actual measurement of temperature for our residents, Yourselves. or our hawkers, mm -hmm. you know, people who get into contact with other people. Um, and we would have to demonstrate by example as well. We even go to the extent of teaching them how to wash their hands real clean so that there is no chance of infection. So I think all these, you know, um, really uh, brought uh, me not just the experience of dealing with people touching lives, but I think it makes me a much more humane and humble person. And it would seem potentially to me really calming to an anxious population to see the leadership taking a really public uh, and hands-on role in public mm -hmm. health. It, it, would, it would seem to minimize the danger somewhat while still teaching people to take precautions. Yes, I think, in fact, there were two effects. You know, one is, of course, they know that that's the right thing to do because mm -hmm. we learn by role modeling, right? right? Um, and the uh, second thing really is that when the grassroots leaders who came along with us saw us doing it, mm -hmm. they knew that this was a serious thing and that they themselves would want to play the lead role and don't want to unnecessarily expose us um, to the dangers of contracting SARS, for example. Right. Yeah, but of course, you know, being a leader, I think we have to be at the forefront of any battleground. Now, before your time in government, you'd done a lot of work in the financial industry. Tell me how you've brought some of that private sector thinking into your role in parliament. Well, fortunately for me, the uh, government, which is, of course, formed by the ruling party, is a pragmatic government vis-a-vis, mm -hmm. -vis, you know, an ideological uh, government. So the Singapore government is very well known for its efficiency, in fo policy formulation as well as policy implementation. Um, and it is also relatively um, market-oriented. Mm -hmm. But what I felt was um, probably my uh, value add to this government is um, the emphasis on being very responsive to uh, the citizens. So in a way, if you talk about market economy, then it's the company being very uh, sensitive to consumer needs. Mm -hmm. So you see so voters as consumers in some sense. That's right. I mean, the residents, the voters, they are uh, the uh, consumption of public goods. Mm -hmm. So obviously, I think the sensitivity um, of how we uh, brand ourselves, um, how do we explain public policies in a very uh, non-statistical, but, you know, um, uh, human way, you know, mm -hmm. language using linguistics right. itself, I think those are important. But of course, um, uh, and, and therefore, you know, what I'm saying is uh, the efficiency is there, but I wanted to um, increase the effectiveness of that communication process, um, which is what the market is very good at, mm -hmm. and also uh, promote some innovation within the uh, civil service itself to think out of the box. Um, there were, in fact, um, three areas uh, that I really wanted uh, to implement uh, uh, some of my own uh, thinking. The first was, of course, in the area of financial literacy, mm -hmm. uh, because um, Singapore, as you know, it's a country that is small in terms of population. Uh, we are about 3.5 3 million uh, uh, citizens, 
4.5 million residents mm-hmm. um, with a fo- falling fertility rate and uh, increased uh, life expectancy and an aging society. Uh, so for me, you know, the uh, financial literacy part of it was very important so that uh, people can uh, understand that they have to be responsible for their own financial future, mm-hmm. take care of their retirement funding, uh, and live a happy silver uh, years. Um, and then the second one was to uh, color the uh, streets of Singapore by introducing, you know, activities like uh, basking um, and, and a much more vibrant uh, street uh, culture. So th- those were uh, some of the things that I immediately got to work. And I must say that uh, I am glad to see some difference now. And has the second innovation led to a lot more tourism? Well, I think the second innovation has led to uh, not just more tourism, but also a, a much more um, lively space for our own citizens, mm-hmm. which is important for me. Um, the, uh, in, the, in the past, Singapore had a reputation of being really clean. Mm-hmm. It is a garden city, so, you know, uh, no litters on the ground. But at the same time, you know, I think we have to go beyond what the single color green. Uh, we've got to have, you know, <laughs> all the other colors on the street so that people feel that this is a space or this is a home mm-hmm. where they can live, work and play. Yeah. You talked a little about the size, about the small population. You've got mm-hmm. a small area. It's about mm-hmm. maybe four Washington, D.C.s, a little less. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of natural resources to deal with. Mm-hmm. How are you going to sustain the kind of economic growth that Singapore's enjoyed for the past 40 years or so? Yeah, so indeed, you know, there is very little underground, so to speak. But um, uh, what is important, therefore, is what stands above ground, which is obviously the quality of the human resource that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even this human resource pool, like it's I said earlier, is actually yeah. a very small pool. So we have a very open door policy to ensure that um, the uh, if there's an economy, then there must be, you know, people uh, working in there as well. Uh but I think, you know, this is not just about building the economy. It is also about building a home and a society. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Singapore um, society itself uh, wants uh, a home that is safe, um, that is clean, um, and that, has, that is a land of opportunities for everybody. Um, so I think there are, for me, four principles uh, where leadership uh, is concerned, uh, and I would summarize them in the four CH. Um, the first CH mm-hmm. is clear mind, uh, clear head, mm-hmm. clean hands, competent hinds, and a compassionate heart. Tell me the n- number three again. Competent hinds, meaning you know, um, you have legs that are competent, they can run, I see. Um, okay. they are Comfort. agile, mm-hmm. and uh, that keeps ourselves relevant, you know, to the uh, the rest of the world. Because Singapore really, you know, um, as I said uh, in some of the uh, other uh, speeches that I gave, we are a nation that is not a market mover, we are a market follower. So mm-hmm. we would have to keep ourselves relevant to the rest of the world. And that means, uh, just to give an, an example, um, our GDP, uh, our trade mm-hmm. is actually three and a half times that of our GDP. Wow. So, you know, anything, any winds of change is going to affect us quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And most of our trade is actually with uh, the US, mm-hmm. Europe, China, 
and of course, you know, Southeast Asia and some. I think India is on the increase as well. So any ch- shifting trade route itself is going to affect our economy. Right. So we've got to keep ourselves very, very vigilant, very, very competent. But then, you know, we also have to make sure that you know we have clear head mm-hmm. that uh, we want to build a home and not just uh, an economy, uh, and we have to have clean hands because um, that's what. Uh, uh, invites foreign direct investments, but also you know provides a level of transparency that um, our citizens demand, and of course, most of all, a compassionate heart. You've also been a really big proponent of social entrepreneurism. Can you tell me what the term means to you and what you think it means for Singapore? Social entrepreneurship to me means um, uh, promoting or reducing a social cause using a market mechanism. And the reason for the market mechanism is because that the market mechanism is the most innovative and efficient uh, means of addressing an issue. Um, so for me, in the case of uh, Singapore, uh, what I wish to see is a self-reliant and inclusive society. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at um, the world today, the world has never been as wealthy as it is today. And that means we can afford to share a bit more with each other. Mm -hmm. It has also never seen the sort of info communication technological advancement that has become so affordable to not just those living in the cities, but those who are living in the uh, villages a thousand miles away. Mm -hmm. And so if we have the technology and we have the wealth, can we then, you know, build a society that is not just meant for people like you and I, uh, who are considered normal and could cope with all the uh, systems that we have established, but also a, a, a larger system that could include those who are traditionally marginalized. Mm-hmm. For example, the disabled, physically disabled, who now, now needs barrier-free access to get around because we have built systems that or roads that are not very friendly to them and further disable or marginalize them? Can we build websites that has universal access and perhaps even braille so that the um, visually impaired could also get access to the knowledge economy, which then you know can help them out of their, their marginalized status? And the entrepreneurial aspect is because it's not charity. You're talking about building ways for people to really participate in the economy and be self-sufficient. Absolutely, because it's not, I don't think we need to, you know, go along the model of a handout. Right. There are there are situations for handout, but we're really looking at handout. And that is only possible, like I said, because technology is enabling that. And wealth, the, the, the level of wealth that the world has, is making this all possible. If you are feeding hand to mouth, I think, you know, we'll be too busy to think (laughs) about that. But now that we have much more than that, can we share along? And I think Singapore would be a very good um, place to start with, only because it is a relatively um, wealthier country Mm -hmm. um, and it is very technologically savvy and it is a city-state where we can, you know, have a lot of, uh, so to speak, social laboratory experiments Mm -hmm. in terms of improving people's lives. Uh, and it's compact enough to get that done. Now, I have read that you've been to 66 countries. Is that the right number? Well, I don't know um, whether it's 66, but it is above 60 countries. (laughs) That's right. What's inspired all that travel? (laughs) A curious mind. And what have you learned? 
I think along the way, I learned that um, uh, humans are basically good, uh, and we we are all um, sharing a lot more similarities than we think. The cultural practices could be different. The worldview, because of our background, could be different. But basically, we all work for a living, but live for a cause. <laughs> And speaking of causes, you've met a lot of people like yourself very dedicated to causes in the World Fellows Program. What have you learned from your colleagues here? Well, it has been a very interesting uh, ride for me uh, in the uh, Yale World Fellows Program. Um, We have about um, 18, including myself, uh, World Fellows from 17 countries. Mm -hmm. And the four months of interaction gives me a peek into not just, you know, about their country from their perspective, but uh, also to better understand what shapes your worldview, uh, what are the causes that uh, they are uh, championing, and the um, interesting ways that they tackle it. Uh, and again, you know, I think that would add to the vast um, experience and uh, of um, social innovation that I could then uh, use on the, the uh, whether it's Singapore, the global platform. Um, I'm not sure whether I mentioned that uh, I also founded a, a non-profit organization called the Social Innovation Park. Yes, um, which is a social entrepreneurism sort of It promotes incubator. social entrepreneurs, that's right. And uh, one of the things that uh, I have uh, really benefited from this program itself is to see the other models that mm-hmm. runs uh, in other countries. And uh, I'm sure that uh, the Yale World Fellows program is not going to end uh, just at the end of the four months, mm-hmm. but rather the friendship, the learning will continue for the rest of my life. Thank you. We've been talking with Singapore MP Penny Lowe, a World Fellow at Yale University. For more information, visit yale.edu slash worldfellows.